Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Hey, Epicos. Hi, hey. Uh, everybody on the east side, everyone watching online, it's good that you are with us today. And in about a month, I'll be able to say hello, Mayfair Road. Yes, let's applause. <laughs> yes, I am... <clears throat> So excited about that. If you have your Bibles, please open to Genesis chapter 50. And and while you're turning, I want to ask you this question. Who here has ever watched an episode of The VeggieTales? Anybody in here? Yeah, yeah. Hey, to me, it is one of the best pieces of Christian children's content that exists. And, and, And my favorite episode, and I'm sure you know this episode, is the episode where they talk about persecution and martyrdom. You remember that episode? Let me remind you because it's, it's a classic. Um, Bob the tomato and Larry the cucumber are called before Emperor Caesar salad. And uh, Emperor Caesar salad told them that they need to stop praising God. They need to stop telling people about God. But Larry and Bob refuse to deny their God. So they're sentenced to die. And so the emperor said that for Larry, his plight is going to be assaulted and plunged in vinegar to be pickled. And then Bob was going to be cut in slices with a serrated knife to be laid on a, uh, a bed of romaine lettuce. But with his final breath, Bob the tomato screamed out, May the lamb that was slain receive all the glory and honor and praise. It's an epic episode. Remember that episode? You shouldn't because it never happened. All right? That's crazy. Like, that would be so traumatic. There would be preschoolers crying all across this world because they just saw Bob become a salad topping. Like, it would be terrible. Of course, we don't have an episode like that of VeggieTales because that's too disturbing for the development of a young child. But sadly, this is how some of us treat the actual Bible. We, we treat the Bible as a series of VeggieTales stories that are pointing us to a few moral attributes, to be a bit more loving, to tell the truth, to be more forgiving. All the while, we're ignoring the heavier parts of Scripture that may challenge us and convict us to change. The Bible is not a series of stories for us to simply become moral people. The Bible is one story where God is revealing himself to his people and it's pointing to the hero of the story, the person, Jesus Christ. And in the Bible, this big story, we see examples of people of faith that are trying to follow the Lord. And we have countless examples of these people of faith living by faith. In fact, there's a whole chapter, you don't have to turn there, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, where it counts all these different individuals throughout uh, a time that were by faith doing amazing things. And, And let me read for some of them for you. Some of them were awesome. Verse 33 of Hebrews 11 says, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice in uh, 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 obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Amazing examples of people living by faith. But in the very next sentence, 
You see example who lived by faith where their faith wasn't as great. In the same verse it says this. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they, that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. In Hebrews 11, we see examples of great faith where the outcome was both really, really good and the outcome was very, very difficult. And in the midst of this chapter, there's this one small verse about the man that we've been studying over the past few weeks, Joseph. Verse 22, it said this. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're at the end of Genesis. Joseph is an old man, and we're going to see how the end of his life is. And I want to put my cards on the table and tell you exactly what I hope you, when we end this service, that you walk out with, all right? Here, here's what I hope happens. I hope that you walk out believing that God is good, that his ways can be trusted, and that God's plan for you has your best interest in mind, all right? So let's pick up our Bibles, Genesis chapter 50, and we're going to start in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Let me do, if, if it's all right with you, I want to do a quick recap of how we got here one last time. All right? So there was a, a pagan man from a pagan nation that God plucked out of the entire earth and said, Through this man, I will begin my, 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 my people that's going to be called out for himself that he's going to make a covenant with. And that man, his name was Abraham. Now, Abraham and his wife were very old and they could not have children, but yet God made a covenant with Abraham saying that I will give you a child and you'll be a father of, of, of a great nation. And by faith, Abraham believed that God was going to give him a child and the child of the promise, his name was Isaac. Isaac ends up having two sons, Jacob and Esau. And God's promise plan continues through Jacob where he has 12 sons and he has Joseph and 11 other dudes. Now listen, I'm not saying 11 other dudes because the 11 other brothers don't matter. I say this because that's how Jacob saw his sons. Jacob saw Joseph and he happened to have 11 other boys. Joseph was Jacob's favorite. And so much so this exemplified by, by, by Jacob giving Joseph a really nice expensive coat. This made Joseph's brothers furious. They were jealous. 
They hated Joseph. So much so that Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery and then ended up telling his dad, their dad, that Joseph was killed by some wild animal. Joseph eventually landed in Potiphar's house in Egypt. And, and Potiphar happened to be the captain of Pharaoh's army. Now the Bible pauses right here and reminds us this truth, that the Lord was with Joseph. While he was at Potiphar's home, he, he kind of was blessed to be in charge of all of Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife became very interested in Joseph and tried to seduce Joseph to get him to sleep with her. But Joseph was a man of integrity and denied her advances. And she got upset and created a lie that Joseph assaulted her. That threw Joseph into prison where he was again in this pit of despair. But again, Scripture reminds us that the Lord was with Joseph. A few years later in prison, he um, has these two men who have this dream, and Joseph interprets their dream. And one of the men, a couple days later, is released from jail to go back into the royal court to serve Pharaoh. And Joseph says, hey, hey, when you go there, don't forget me. And the man immediately forgot him. And so two years go by, Joseph is still in prison, but Pharaoh has a very disturbing dream. And no one can interpret his dream, and so he calls Joseph out of prison into the royal court to interpret his dream. Joseph is able to interpret the dream, and the dream is all about this famine that's about to come through the entire known world, and Egypt is going to be severely affected by this famine unless they listen to Joseph's plan to save Egypt. Pharaoh was very pleased by this interpretation and this plan, and so he raised Joseph up to basically become the vice president of all of Egypt. In that time, the famine came to Egypt and it was really severe, but Joseph was able to save Egypt. All the while, at the same time, Joseph's family is wandering, trying to find food because the famine was so bad, and they ended up in Egypt, and through a series of tests and conversations, Joseph revealed himself to his family and said, hey, you can stay here. You'll be able to have food because Egypt has food. And you'll be able to stay in Goshen to grow and prosper as God's people with the, with the, kind of the, the, the security that happens in Egypt. 17 years later, Joseph's dad passes away. Jacob dies. There's a big funeral procession that goes all the way to Canaan because Jacob wanted to be buried with his father and his grandfather. On the way back, the family's heading back to Egypt. The brothers had this oh no moment. They were like, wait a minute, our dad's dead now. What if the only reason Joseph hasn't seeked retaliation towards all that we've done is because their dad was like a buffer for Joseph's wrath? And now that their dad is gone, there might be a chance that Joseph is going to punish them for all the things that they did. So, so they come up with this plan. They, they, they go and they plead with Joseph for, the, for his forgiveness. They come up with this, this saying that, that their father on his deathbed asked that Joseph forgives his brothers. The problem with that is nowhere in Scripture does it say that Jacob on his deathbed asked for their brothers to tell Joseph to forgive them. So we don't know if that's true, but whether that's true or not, this is all we get for Joseph's brother's repentance, Joseph's brother's confession that they did something wrong, and this is where we are in this story 
And, and we're going to see in verse 19 how Joseph responds to his brother's apology. Let's pick up your Bibles again. Go to verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He began by asking this question, am I in the place of God? And this is a good question because Joseph is saying, if you're worried that I'm going to retaliate or get retribution for what you've done, I've already forgiven you. Like that's not my job. That, that's not my place to seek revenge. That's on God. I'm not God. So you don't have to worry about that. You see, Joseph already forgave them. Like th that was already done and set in stone. But on top of that, Joseph knew what we as God's people should know is that as God's people, our job is to not get revenge with people. It is God who deals with sin and evil. And it is God who will deal with their judgment of people's sins. We do not seek revenge for the people who have hurt us or sought evil against us. That's God's job. God handles that, not you and I. And he then says something that is both comforting to hear, but it's kind of difficult to believe. Let's reread verse 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This isn't the first time Joseph says something like this to his brothers. In fact, in chapter 45, verse 5, he reveals himself to them and says that he is Joseph and he's in charge here. And this is what he says to them for the very first time in this very first interaction when they realize that this is Joseph. Joseph says this. He says, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. He says, yo, yo, I know you sold me into slavery but God sent me here. I, there's a purpose in all this. If there's any, like Joseph has every right to be angry and bitter about how his life went. I mean, he was thrown in jail. He was betrayed. He, people accused him of things. Like he has every right to be angry, but he believed God when God said that he was with him. He, he believed that the suffering and evil he experienced wasn't for nothing, but, but God had a good purpose and plan for him in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of all the things he went through. Now listen, this isn't some kind of sentimental feeling. This isn't Joseph saying, well, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. No, he's not in jail thinking, like manifesting a future of like, oh, it's going to be okay with me. Listen, I've tried manifesting. I wanted to manifest abs for years. It hasn't happened, okay? But listen, th this isn't simply him trying to use the power of positive thinking. This is the practical application of believing that when God says he is with you, God is not lying. When God promises to care for you and be with you, he will come through. God is undefeated when it comes to keeping his promises. Joseph 
believed him when God said he was with him. This theme is found all throughout scripture. This idea that God takes evil and sin and turns it for good is found all over the Bible. I wanna talk about two Bible verses that are very popular that you probably know how this theme is shown up in scripture. The first one is Jeremiah 29, 11. Now I know you know this verse. You can't walk in the Hobby Lobby without getting hit with a pillow with this verse embroidered on it, right? Everyone knows Jeremiah 29, 11, but in case you don't, let me remind you. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This passage is beautiful. But sadly, all too often, you and I rip this verse out of its context to treat it like a warm blanket when we're going through a hard time. We treat this passage as if when we're suffering and when we're struggling and we're going through a difficult time, we close our eyes and think, God doesn't want me to struggle. God doesn't want me to suffer. He has plans for me. In fact, he wants me to prosper. He, he has something good for me. And so if I just repeat this verse over and over again, God is going to yank me out of my problems. That's not what this verse means. The context of this passage is that Jeremiah is writing to the Israelites who are in Babylon. And they're in exile. And they're in exile because they sinned. They, they were disobedient to God. And so God let them get conquered by the Babylonians. And while this was happening, there was these false prophets who were saying, hey, it's going to be all right. Like, give it a year or two. This will all be over. And they were giving false hope to the Israelites. And the Israelites were getting very, very sad and disappointed and upset. They, they, were, they were scared and they were afraid. They were thinking, none of this makes sense. Like, we are God's people, yet we're suffering and struggling. We're dying in the streets. Yet the Babylonians who are evil, they're flourishing. Their families are growing. They're getting more money. They're prospering. Does God even care about us? Has God forgotten us? This is what the Israelites were thinking. So Jeremiah, who's a prophet of God, shows up and he writes them a letter. And he says that, no, 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 God has not forgotten you. In fact, God has a plan for you, and it's a good plan, a plan that's going to be great. And it's this plan that God has for you should give you hope right now. Everyone knows Jeremiah 29, 11, but no one has ever read Jeremiah 29, 10. Because the verse right before he talks about this amazing plan that should give you hope, Jeremiah says, but this plan is not going to happen for another 70 years. And so, so, so this, the, to the original audience who is hearing from Jeremiah and us today as Christians, as we're reading this chapter, this verse, what it should tell us is that God has a good plan for you. And it's great and it should give you hope. But it does not mean that in the midst of your suffering, he's going to yank you out of your problems. What it does mean is that in the midst of your suffering, you can have hope that God has a good plan for you and it will come true. But this is about in the midst of your suffering, your suffering might not end today, tomorrow, a couple weeks or a couple years, but God is still good despite of the suffering and his hope can sustain us through the suffering. That's the good news for Jeremiah 29, 11. So you have Genesis 50, 20, Jeremiah 29, 11. And in the New Testament, this theme is summarized in Romans 8, 28. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, 
we can have confidence that whatever happens in our life, all the good stuff, all the bad stuff, God is using it for your good. Every single moment of sunshine and joy and laughter and great experiences that you can have and every tear, every moment of sadness and worry and fear that you have, God has taken all of it to, to grow your character and it's for your good. Nothing in your life is wasted. God is using all of it for your benefit, for your peace, for your shalom, for your good. God has your best intentions in mind with every aspect of your life. He's using it to build his plan for you. So, when you have Genesis 50:20, Jeremiah 29:11, and Romans 8:28, and you stack those verses together, what it does is it gives us a theological foundation for how we should see suffering in our lives. It, it, it can give us the boldness, the audacity to be like Joseph and to forgive people who have done all kinds of evil towards you. Now, hear me when I say this. When, when, when I say that we're able to forgive people who've done evil towards you, we're not justifying wickedness. We're not saying what people who have done evil things for you is okay. In fact, Joseph clearly says what you have done for evil. Saying Joseph is acknowledging what their brothers did was wrong and sinful and evil. He's acknowledging they're wrong. But what Joseph is doing, he's not minimizing what they did but he's saying that I have the power to forgive them because that forgiveness is mostly for you to release that bondage of bitterness that can oftentimes be more toxic than the evil that was committed towards you. Are you following me? Instead of seeking revenge for the people who have hurt you, let's seek therapy. Like, like, like in my own life, I went to therapy to process the pain of those who have hurt me. And through therapy and trusting and believing in the gospel that Jesus forgave me, even when I was at my worst, I was able to forgive others and release that bondage of bitterness that wants to hold me down and that wants to keep me trapped. This, these verses give us a theological foundation that when you feel like you are in the depths of your suffering, your hope is not stolen from you because you know that God is with you and he has a plan for your suffering. And this theme that's found all throughout scripture is most beautifully seen at the cross. In Genesis 3, Sin and death came into this world and sin and death ruled and reigned and conquered all throughout time until it became face to face with Jesus. And Jesus took that sin and took that death and took all the evil with him on the cross. And in exchange, he gives us grace and hope and love and true life. Jesus is the epitome of this example where he takes what the world meant for evil, he turns it for our good. That's the good news of the gospel. Let's pick up our Bibles one more time. Let's finish Genesis chapter 50 as we see Joseph in the last moments of his life. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. 
And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph was able to do what many of us hope to do one day, get really, really old and just play with their grandkids. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. He wants, I mean, he's enjoying his life so much. He's adopting other kids to, be, to have more grandkids. I mean, he's just, he's just living the dream. And, and, and I love it because Joseph is able to enjoy his final years of his life despite so much of his youth being robbed from him. Joseph calls in his family and does something very similar to what Jacob asked of Joseph. He, he makes his family swear to him that when he dies, that they don't bury him in Egypt, but they take his bones and they bury him in the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the land of the promise. But unlike Jacob, it's not going to happen quickly. In fact, he's gonna, his bones is going to be in Egypt for quite a while because in the same section, Joseph foretells, prophesies, he, he tells them about the future of what's going to happen, that God is going to come to Egypt and ultimately the plans of the Exodus are going to happen. In the very next book of the Bible after Genesis, what we see is that God does come to Egypt and he raises a man named Moses who's going to lead God's people out of Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. And it's at that time, Joseph's coffin will be carried out of Egypt as well to be taken, to be buried in the promised land. As we have journeyed through this series called Technicolor um, and reflect on the life of Joseph, it made me think about some of my friends who I went to college with. I went to a, a small Bible college in Florida and, and my experience was great. I loved it. Like it's a very small Bible college. And when I woke up, from the time I woke up to the time I went to bed, I was surrounded by Christians that we got to talk about Jesus all the time. Like, we got to make corny, like, cheesy Bible jokes in the hallways. And, and, and it wasn't unusual, like, in the middle of math class to stop what we're doing and just to pray. Like, I loved my time in Bible college. So it, it wouldn't be a surprise that it was very jarring to me that when I got to my 30s, I realized that some of the people who I were in school with that we talked about Jesus and life with turned their back on Christ. They walked away from the faith. And, and, and as I was reconnecting with some of these folks, I, I began to try to ask questions to see what happened in their life that caused them to once be a follower of Jesus to no longer being a follower of Jesus. And there was this kind of theme that I could see through all the people I spoke to. Ultimately, they all said the same thing. They stopped believing that God was there for their good, that God had their best intentions in mind. I mean, they would say, where was God when my mom got cancer? Where was God when my spouse cheated on me? Where was God when I had my miscarriage? And I, and, and I get it. That stuff is traumatic. That stuff is heavy. And, and, and it would have been very easy for me to think, well, they just didn't have enough faith. Like, like, unlike me, I have a lot of faith. They didn't have enough faith. Maybe they weren't even Christians. But that's not what I thought. When I hear these stories over and over again, I just kept thinking, that could have been me. Like, I'm one traumatic experience away from just giving up on everything and turning my back on God. And that terrified me. 
But what was interesting is that I had friends who were from that time who were also just overwhelmed with these stories of people walking away from faith, and they were processing this as well. And, and they said to each other, we want to remain faithful. We need to keep each other accountable. I do not want to fall away. I, if Christ has been faithful to me, how dare I ever not be faithful to Jesus? And so they made a pact. And I heard about this pact and I adopted it for my own. And I want to share with you what this pact that they made was. The first part of this pact is this. Don't give up. When I played football, uh, we had these games that were really, really close. It would be the end of the third quarter. We'd be down by two or three touchdowns. And me in the starting, in the starting lineup would be like, Coach, this doesn't matter. We're losing. We're going to lose this game. Put the backups in. Like, they need some playing time. Like, I don't want to get hurt. Like, what's the point of playing, right? And the coach would, would rally us together, get in our faces and start screaming, we don't give up. Like, the game is not over until the game is over. Until the final whistle, until the clock hits zero, until the lights turn off, we do not give up. We're going to play every down like it's the first down. We're going to fight till this game is over. And that kind of hoorah speech got me hyped and we got back in the game. And we got the game pretty close usually. In the same way, when Joseph was in prison after being betrayed by his brothers, accused by Potiphar's wife, and forgotten by those he helped, he could have given up, but he knew his story was not over. When, when you put your faith in Jesus, he promises you the Holy Spirit. He, he, the Holy Spirit is there to guide you and to comfort you. And since you have the Holy Spirit, you can be confident that God is with you. He has not given up on you. He is there with you the entire time. So even in the most difficult of times, you are not alone. Your story is not over. The New Testament has a lot to say about not growing weary and doing good and to persevere. A faith that saves is a faith that endures. And as you are fighting to remain faithful in this faith and fighting sin and pursuing holiness, God is working inside you to give you the strength you need to fight another day. Don't give up. The second thing is this, no easy answers. No easy answers. One thing we kept hearing over and over again in this series is that we are sojourners, that this is not our home. We have a king and a kingdom that is not of this world. But here's the problem. We're not like E.T., just super stoked about leaving this place, right? Like, like we are, we, I was born here. Like, this is my home. This is where I'm from. And so when I came to Christ, there was these moments where what I know to be true from living here and what the Bible says to be true is conflicting my thoughts, and I don't know how to feel in those moments. So in those moments, I need to do what Romans 12 says and allow the Scriptures to transform my mind to be the person God wants me to be. There is a great author and Bible teacher named Jen Wilkin, and she has this quote. She says this, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. Right thinking will beget right feeling. There will be times as believers where we will be presented with difficult questions that we may not like the answers to initially. Hard questions, questions about your identity, integrity, your relationships, how are we to relate with one another? Or better yet, how are we to treat one another? And we cannot accept easy answers because easy answers don't satisfy life's hardest questions. Here is my challenge to you. 
Next week, we're starting the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is an amazing book giving us a snapshot of the life of Jesus Christ. But that same book raises really difficult questions that demand really difficult answers. And what I want to challenge you is as we read the Gospel of John together, allow Scripture to challenge you, to convict you, to transform your mind to be the person God wants you to be, to not accept easy answers, but accept the difficult answers in Scripture so you can be the the person God wants you to be, so you can be faithful to Him. The second thing I want you to do is this. Today is the first day you can sign up for small groups. I want everyone who can hear my voice right now to go to groups.epicos.org. And I want you to find a small group. I want you to find a small group that fits best with your schedule because of this. The reason why we allow easy answers for difficult questions is because we don't want people to challenge us or convict us to change. And so when you join a small group, you, you now don't have to deal with life's difficult questions alone. Now hear me out. Your small group might not have all the answers, but at least you are with people to work out those difficult questions together. For Joseph, the easy answer for him would be to believe that God was allowing all of his suffering because he didn't care or he was indifferent towards him. Throughout all the tragedies of Joseph's life, we are reminded over and over and over again that God was with him. The real answer was that God was orchestrating this plan for him to become the most powerful person in all of Egypt so that he could save his family. In the midst of his suffering, God was with him and God was gracious towards him so that when he got to the position of power, he was able to be gracious towards others. Let's read one more time. Chapter 50 of Genesis, verses 20 and 21. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. In the past few months, if all you got out of this Technicolor series is that Joseph is an example to us that we should be more forgiving to people, then that's the VeggieTales version of this entire story. It's not good enough. What, what the life of Joseph is pointing to is that we have a good God that is with us. And through Jesus, he takes all of the evil and all of the sin in the world and he turns it for our good so that you can be made alive, so that you do not have to fear because God will provide for you and he has a plan for you. And through the Holy Spirit that he gives you, God is there to comfort you. Even through the most difficult of times, when people hurt you and when you're going through suffering, God is with you. The Lord was with Joseph at his worst. The Lord is with us right now. Don't give up. No easy answers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you because in the midst of our lives, as the midst of our, our, our plodding through this world, it's not easy. It's not easy being a follower of you who have called us to righteousness and holiness because the world does not want us to live in that kind of way. As the world is pulling us further away from you, you have given us the Holy Spirit to, to bring us closer to you, Lord. And as we are in this middle of this tug of war, fighting to remain faithful, Lord, we praise you because you never give up on us. You are with us and you have promised that you'll never leave us. 
So, Lord, I ask you today to give me, to give everyone in this room, everyone listening to this sermon, the strength to persevere one more day and to persevere one more day after that and to continue to never let us give up. And, Lord, as we read your word, as we interact with other believers, Lord, let us never accept easy answers. Let us dive deep into what you want us to know and transform our mind so that it changes our hearts so that we can become the people, the character that you want inside of us so that we can be your people that glorify and honor you to the day we get to glory. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In your son's name I pray, amen.